Chapter Twenty Six of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Read by Tom Daly. Chapter Twenty Six. Early in March, nineteen o two, having lived in a violent ward for nearly four months, I was transferred to another, a ward quite as orderly as the best in the institution though less attractively furnished than the one in which I had first been placed. Here also I had a room to myself. In this instance, however, the room had not only a bed, but a chair and a wardrobe. With this elaborate equipment I was soon able to convert my room into a veritable studio, whereas in the violent ward it had been necessary for me to hide my writings and drawing materials to keep other patients from taking them, in my new abode I was able to conduct my literary and artistic pursuits without the annoyances which had been inevitable during the preceding months. Soon after my transfer to this ward, I was permitted to go out of doors and walk to the business section of the city, two miles distant. But on these walks I was always accompanied. To one who has never surrendered any part of his liberty, such surveillance would no doubt seem irksome. Yet to me, after being so closely confined, the ever-present attendant seemed a companion rather than a guard. These excursions into the sane and free world were not only a great pleasure, they were almost a tonic. To rub elbows with normal people tended to restore my mental poise. That the casual passer-by had no way of knowing that I was a patient out for a walk about the city helped me gain that self-confidence so essential to the success of one about to re-enter a world from which he had long been cut off. My first trips to the city were made primarily for the purpose of supplying myself with writing and drawing materials. While enjoying these welcome tastes of liberty, on more than one occasion I surreptitiously mailed certain letters which I did not dare entrust to the doctor. Under ordinary circumstances, such an act on the part of one enjoying a special privilege would be dishonorable but the circumstances that then obtained were not ordinary. I was simply protecting myself against what I believed to be unjust and illegal confiscation of letters. I have already described how an assistant physician arbitrarily denied my request that I be permitted to send a birthday letter to my father, thereby not merely exceeding his authority and ignoring decency, but, consciously or unconsciously, stifling a sane impulse. That this should occur while I was confined in the bullpen was, perhaps, not so surprising. But about four months later, while I was in one of the best wards, a similar, though less open, interference occurred. At this time I was so nearly normal that my discharge was a question of but a very few months. Anticipating my return to my old world, I decided to renew former relationships. Accordingly, my brother, at my suggestion, informed certain friends that I should be pleased to receive letters from them. They soon wrote. In the meantime, the doctor had been instructed to deliver to me any and all letters that might arrive. He did so for a time, and that without censoring. As was to be expected, after three almost letterless years, I found rare delight in replying to my reawakened correspondence. Yet some of these letters, 
written for the deliberate purpose of re-establishing myself in the sane world, were destroyed by the doctor in authority. At the time, not one word did he say to me about the matter. I had handed him for mailing certain letters unsealed. He did not mail them, nor did he forward them to my conservator as he should have done, and had earlier agreed to do, with all letters which he could not see his way clear to approve. It was fully a month before I learned that my friends had not received my replies to their letters. Then I accused the doctor of destroying them, and he, with belated frankness, admitted that he had done so. He offered no better excuse than the mere statement that he did not approve of the sentiments I had expressed. Another flagrant instance was that of a letter addressed to me in reply to one of those which I had posted surreptitiously. The person to whom I wrote, a friend of years' standing, later informed me that he had sent the reply. I never received it. Neither did my conservator. Were it not that I feel absolutely sure that the letter in question was received at the hospital and destroyed, I should not now raise this point. But such a point, if raised at all, must of course be made without that direct proof which can come only from the man guilty of an act which in the sane world is regarded as odious and criminal. I therefore need not dilate on the reasons which made it necessary for me to smuggle, as it were, to the governor of the state, a letter of complaint and instruction. This letter was written shortly after my transfer from the violent ward. The abuses of that ward were still fresh in my mind, and the memory of distressing scenes was kept vivid by reports reaching me from friends who were still confined there. These private sleuths of mine I talked with at the evening entertainments or at other gatherings. From them I learned that brutality had become more rife, if anything, since I had left the ward. Realizing that my crusade against the physical abuse of patients thus far had proved of no avail, I determined to go over the heads of the doctors and appeal to the ex officio head of the institution, the governor of the state. On March 12, 1903, I wrote a letter which so disturbed the governor that he immediately set about an informal investigation of some of my charges. Despite its prolixity, its unconventional form, and what, under other circumstances, would be characterized as almost diabolic impudence and familiarity, as he said months later when I talked with him, rang true. The writing of it was an easy matter. In fact, so easy because of the pressure of truth under which I was laboring at the time, that it embodied a compelling spontaneity. The mailing of it was not so easy. I knew that the only sure way of getting my thoughts before the governor was to do my own mailing. Naturally, no doctor could be trusted to send an indictment against himself and his colleagues to the one man in the state who had the power to institute such an investigation as might make it necessary for all to seek employment elsewhere. In my frame of mind, to wish to mail my letter was to know how to accomplish the wish. The letter was in reality a booklet. I had thoughtfully used waterproof India drawing ink in writing it, in order, perhaps, that a remote posterity might not be deprived of the document. The booklet consisted of thirty-two eight-by-ten pages of heavy white drawing paper. 
These I sewed together. In planning the form of my letter, I had forgotten to consider the slot of a letter-box of average size. Therefore, I had to adopt an unusual method of getting the letter into the mails. My expedient was simple. There was in town a certain shop where I traded. At my request, the doctor gave me permission to go there for supplies. I was, of course, accompanied by an attendant who little suspected what was under my vest. To conceal and carry my letter in that place had been easy, but to get rid of it after reaching my goal was another matter. Watching my opportunity, I slipped the missive between the leaves of a copy of the Saturday Evening Post. This I did, believing that some purchaser would soon discover the letter and mail it. Then I left the shop. On the back of the wrapper I had endorsed the following words. Mr. Postmaster, this package is unsealed. Nevertheless, it is first-class matter. Everything I write is necessarily first-class. I have affixed two two-cent stamps. If extra postage is needed, you will do the governor a favor if you will put the extra postage on, or affix due stamps and let the governor pay his own bills, as he can well afford to. If you want to know who I am, just ask His Excellency and oblige. Yours truly, question mark. Flanking this notice, I had arrayed other forceful sentiments as follows, taken from statutes which I had framed for the occasion. Any person finding letter or package, duly stamped and addressed, must mail same, as said letter or package is really in hands of the government the moment the stamp is affixed. And again, failure to comply with federal statute, which forbids anyone except addressee to open a letter, renders one liable to imprisonment in state prison. My letter reached the governor. One of the clerks at the shop in which I left the missive found and mailed it. From him I afterwards learned that my unique instructions had piqued his curiosity as well as compelled my wished-for action. Assuming that the reader's curiosity may likewise have been piqued, I shall quote certain passages from this four-thousand-word epistle of protest. The opening sentence read as follows. If you have had the courage to read the above, referring to an unconventional heading, I hope you will read on to the end of this epistle, thereby displaying real Christian fortitude and learning a few facts which I think should be brought to your attention. I then introduced myself, mentioning a few common friends by way of indicating that I was not without influential political connections, and proceeded as follows. I take pleasure in informing you that I am in the crazy business and am holding my job down with ease and a fair degree of grace. Being in the crazy business, I understand certain phases of the business about which you know nothing. You as governor are at present head devil in this hell, though I know you are unconsciously acting as His Majesty's First Lieutenant. I then launched into my arraignment of the treatment of the insane. The method, I declared, was wrong from start to finish. The abuses existing here exist in every other institution of the kind in the country. They are all alike, though some of them are, of course, worse than others. Hell is hell the world over, 
and I might also add that hell is only a great big bunch of disagreeable details anyway. That's all an insane asylum is. If you don't believe it, just go crazy and take up your abode here. In writing this letter, I am laboring under no mental excitement. I am no longer subjected to the abuses about which I complain. I am well and happy. In fact, I never was so happy as I am now. Whether I am in perfect mental health or not, I shall leave for you to decide. If I am insane today, I hope I may never recover my reason. First I assailed the management of the private institution where I had been straitjacketed and referred to Jekyll Hyde as Dr. Blank, M.D., mentally deranged. Then followed an account of the straitjacket experience, then an account of abuses at the state hospital. I described in detail the most brutal assaults that fell to my lot. In summing up, I said, the attendants claimed next day that I had called them certain names. Maybe I did, though I don't believe I did at all. What of it? This is no young lady's boarding school. Should a man be nearly killed because he swears at attendants who swear like pirates? I have seen at least fifteen men, many of them mental and physical wrecks, assaulted just as brutally as I was, and usually without a cause. I know that men's lives have been shortened by these brutal assaults, and that is only a polite way of saying that murder has been committed here. Turning next to the matter of the women's wards, I said, A patient in this ward, a man in his right mind, who leaves here on Tuesday next, told me that a woman patient told him that she had seen many a helpless woman dragged along the floor by her hair, and had also seen them choked by attendants who used a wet towel as a sort of garrote. I have been through the mill and believe every word of the abuse. You will perhaps doubt it, as it seems impossible. Bear in mind, though, that everything bad and disagreeable is possible in an insane asylum. It will be observed that I was shrewd enough to qualify a charge I could not prove. When I came to the matter of the bullpen, I wasted no words. The bullpen, I wrote, is a pocket edition of the New York Stock Exchange during a panic. I next pointed out the difficulties a patient must overcome in mailing letters. It is impossible for anyone to send a letter to you via the office. The letter would be consigned to the wastebasket, unless it was a particularly crazy letter, in which case it might reach you, as you would then pay no attention to it. But a sane letter and a true letter, telling about the abuses which exist here, would stand no show of being mailed. The way in which mail is tampered with by the medical staff is contemptible. I then described my stratagem in mailing my letter to the governor. Discovering that I had left a page of my epistolary booklet blank, I drew upon it a copy of Rembrandt's Anatomy Lesson, and under it wrote, This page was skipped by mistake, had to fight fifty-three days to get writing paper, and I hate to waste any space, hence the masterpiece, drawn in five minutes. Never drew a line till September twenty-sixth, last, and never took lessons in my life. I think you will readily believe my statement. Continuing in the same half-bantering vein, I said, 
I intend to immortalize all members of medical staff of State Hospital for the Insane when I illustrate my inferno, which, when written, will make Dante's Divine Comedy look like a French farce. I then outlined my plans for reform. Whether my suggestions meet with approval or not, I wrote, will not affect the result, though opposition on your part would perhaps delay reforms. I have decided to devote the next few years of my life to correcting abuses now in existence in every asylum in this country. I know how these abuses can be corrected, and I intend, later on, when I understand the subject better, to draw up a Bill of Rights for the insane. Every state in the Union will pass it, because it will be founded on the Golden Rule. I am desirous of having the cooperation of the Governor of Connecticut, but if my plans do not appeal to him, I shall deal directly with his only superior, the President of the United States. When Theodore Roosevelt hears my story, his blood will boil. I would write him now, but I am afraid he would jump in and correct abuses too quickly, and by doing it too quickly, too little good would be accomplished. Waxing crafty, yet, as I believed, writing truth, I continued, I need money badly and if I cared to, I could sell my information and services to the New York World or New York Journal for a large amount. But I do not intend to advertise Connecticut as a hellhole of iniquity, insanity, and injustice. If the facts appeared in the public press at this time, Connecticut would lose caste with her sister states, and they would profit by Connecticut's disgrace and correct the abuses before they could be put on the rack. As these conditions prevail throughout the country, there is no reason why Connecticut should get all the abuse and criticism which would follow any such revelation of disgusting abuse, such inhuman treatment of human wrecks. If publicity is necessary to force you to act, and I am sure it will not be necessary, I shall apply for a writ of habeas corpus, and, in proving my sanity to a jury, I shall incidentally prove your own incompetence, permitting such a whirlwind reformer to drag Connecticut's disgrace into open court would prove your incompetence. For several obvious reasons, it is well that I did not at that time attempt to convince a jury that I was mentally sound. The mere outlining of my ambitious scheme for reform would have caused my immediate return to the hospital. That scheme, however, was a sound and feasible one, as later events have proved. But taking hold of me, as it did, while my imagination was at white heat, I was impelled to attack my problem with compromising energy, and, for a time, in a manner so unconvincing as to obscure the essential sanity of my cherished purpose. I closed my letter as follows. No doubt you will consider certain parts of this letter rather fresh. I apologize for any such passages now, but, as I have an insane license, I do not hesitate to say what I think. What's the use when one is caged like a criminal? P.S. This letter is a confidential one, and is to be returned to the writer upon demand. The letter was eventually forwarded to my conservator, and is now in my possession. As a result of my protest, 
the governor immediately interrogated the superintendent of the institution where Jekyll Hyde had tortured me. Until he laid before the superintendent my charges against his assistant, the doctor in authority had not even suspected that I had been tortured. This superintendent took pride in his institution. He was sensitive to criticism, and it was natural that he should strive to palliate the offense of his subordinate. He said that I was a most troublesome patient, which was indeed the truth, for I had always a way of my own for doing the things that worried those in charge of me. In a word, I brought to bear upon the situation what I have previously referred to as an uncanny admixture of sanity. The governor did not meet the assistant physician who had maltreated me. The reprimand, if there was to be any, was left to the superintendent to administer. In my letter to the governor, I had laid more stress upon the abuses to which I had been subjected at this private institution than I had upon conditions at the state hospital where I was when I wrote to him. This may have had some effect on the action he took, or rather failed to take. At any rate, as to the state hospital, no action was taken. Not even a word of warning was sent to the officials, as I later learned, for before leaving the institution I asked them. Though my letter did not bring about an investigation, it was not altogether without results. Naturally, it was with considerable satisfaction that I informed the doctors that I had outwitted them, and it was with even greater satisfaction that I now saw those in authority make a determined, if temporary, effort to protect helpless patients against the cruelties of attendance. The moment the doctors were convinced that I had gone over their heads and had sent a characteristic letter of protest to the governor of the state, that moment they began to protect themselves with an energy born of a realization of their former shortcomings. Whether or not the management in question ever admitted that their unwanted activity was due to my successful stratagem, the fact remains that the summary discharge of several attendants accused and proved guilty of brutality immediately followed, and for a while put a stop to wanton assaults against which, for a period of four months, I had protested in vain. Patients who still lived in the violent ward told me that comparative peace reigned about this time. End of chapter 26